Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as Johnny mentioned in the beginning, if you're new here, we're really glad you're here, whether you've been going to church for a long time, whether you follow Christ, or whether you're just checking things out, maybe because somebody brought you here. Uh, know that, that you are most welcome here, and even though we're a little bit later into the fall, we know that often people are still moving in and out of the city. So if you're new to the city, we know that can be disorienting, and, and we'd love to help you find a home here, uh, whatever what that means, be it here or, or somewhere else. So um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve, and I lead the Clarendon Campus that meets on Sunday evenings, and so Pastor Jason and I, we preach at each campus. Sometimes he heads over there and and fills in for me, and then sometimes I come over here and fill in for him, and it's always a delight to come here and and worship with you all on on Sunday mornings. So please go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 John. Uh, We're beginning a new series, 1 John. We're walking through that this winter, so open up your Bibles, and we'll also have the words on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please just grab one from the back and keep it. That'll be our, that'll be our gift to you. If you're having a hard time finding it, just go all the way back to Revelation, make a left. You'll see Jude, Third John, Second John, and then First John. The really tiny book, so easy to breeze by. So just please uh, read along silently with me as I read verses one through four. First John one, one through four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please pray with me as we dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are steadfast, even though we are not. Uh, We come to you this morning pleading with you to open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit, because it's only through your Spirit that we can actually discern and behold you in your law. So please do that for us this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this letter is written by, anybody have a guess who wrote 1 John? Incorrect. Incorrect. And you're teaching our children, Sam. Thank you. Yes, John. Thank you. Yes, it's John. Pastor Johnny Reeves said he would give a $500 gift card to anybody who got the answer, so please just see him after service. He'll be, he'll be happy to do that for you from his personal account, not, not the church's account. Uh, so this letter is written by John. So this, this is the same John that, that walked with Jesus, saw Jesus. He, he wrote the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. And the reason why he is writing this letter is because he's writing to a group of churches. And what happened in these churches, probably around the reason, region of Ephesus, is a group of people had seceded from these churches, and they had since come back, and they were teaching the churches contradictory things about Jesus. So, so they're undermining uh, the confidence that these men and women have have and, and, and who Jesus is. And so John writes uh, for a very specific, simple, but important purpose to give, them ins- to give them assurance. Assurance. The great thing about John is he makes it very clear why he writes. So at, at the end of the book in 1 John 5 verse uh, 13, he says, I'm writing these things so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. 
So he wrote the Gospel of John so you could know that how, how to have eternal life. And now he's writing to believers so that they, they can know that they, in fact, have eternal life. And this is profoundly helpful for, for all three types of people that are sitting in a church at any given moment. So, so first, uh, for those of you who might not be a Christian, who might not follow Christ, maybe you have no interest in doing so, maybe you are interested. But first, John gives a very clear picture in how can you know God? How can you know that you can have eternal life? The second group of people uh, that it's really critical for is, at any given moment, there, there's always a group of people in the church who believe they are Christians when in fact they are actually not. And so what I've been praying for you all for this week is for the, there, there are, there's bound to be people in here now who, who think you know God. Who really believe you have eternal life, maybe because you've been in the church for a long time, maybe because you know more doctrines than other churchgoers, but you don't actually know God in the way that First John is, is going to talk about here. And so, and so I hope that, that God uses this to, to wake you up uh, so that you can actually know him and have eternal life. And, and number three, for, for believers, th- this is critical. Um, particularly in our cultural moment, because, so following Christ has always been, been difficult, but recently in the West at least, the, the, the landscape of belief, if you will, has, has shifted pretty rapidly and dramatically. So 50 to 100 years ago, yes, not the majority were, were Christians probably, but Christianity it did at least appear to be a, a, a very plausible belief system to adhere to. You were often at least respected if you were a Christian. That's not so much the case anymore. Uh, first, Christianity, it's not seen as one of the main ways to find ultimate reality, but it's just seen as, as one among many of alternatives. You know, so, so often, you know, when you talk with your friends and your family members and you go online, like, you have many different types of people who are as convinced as you are uh, that their view of truth is true, whether there is no God, um, whether there is a God, but, but he didn't manifest himself in the person work of Jesus Christ. And so it, it can be disorienting, can't it? When sometimes you wonder, am I, like, am I the crazy one? Because I believe some pretty crazy things, like Jesus rose from the dead. Really? I believe in an invisible God. Really? And so John's writing to, to give you assurance. Yes, yes, you can actually know. And here's how. So as we look at the introduction to his letter today, what John's going to do as he begins this letter on assurance is he, he's going to start right off the bat and telling you why Jesus came. So he says, we can't even move forward until you know why Jesus came. And uh, there's a number of things in here, but here are at least three things that, that he shows you about why Jesus came, came to earth. And uh, first, we're going to see that Jesus came to make your joy complete. Second, we'll see that Jesus came so that you can have fellowship with God. And then third, we'll see that Jesus came so that you can know who God is. So first, Jesus came to make your joy complete. Second, to give you fellowship with God. And then third, uh, so that you can know who God is. Okay, so number one, Jesus came to make your joy complete. So this is John's train of thought. In the, in the beginning, you know he's talking about Jesus because he, he talks about the word of life. There he's talking about Jesus and he makes it clear throughout the letter that that's who he's referring to. And so his train of logic is this word of life, Jesus Christ, came to earth. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him. And we are telling you about him. 
Because if we tell you about him and you believe in him, then you'll have fellowship with God. And if that happens, then our joy will be complete, he says there in verse 4. So Jesus came, I'm telling you about him, so if you know him, you'll have fellowship with God. And if so, then you will have joy complete. So complete joy is possible. Now, if you're sitting there waiting for Steve to get to the point, then either you're, you're asleep or you're not listening. Complete joy is possible. That, that's a startling statement. That's a thunderous statement. Why? Because most people begin life thinking that joy is inevitable, particularly in, in the West. So unless something traumatic happened to you in your childhood, and I'm sensitive to the fact that there may be people in here who that did happen to, uh, but for, for many people, you're, you're born, and as you grow up, you, you have the whole world in front of you. So there's, so there's friends to make, and distant countries to visit, and somebody to marry, and kids to have, and, and a house to move into. And, and you're, you're told it's, an, it's injected into your bloodstream throughout all the Disney movies, that if you just follow your heart, which means if you just follow whatever your desires are telling you, Sure, sure, you'll have obstacles. Yes, there's going to be hardships. But if you just stay true to yourself, then you can have joy. But is that how life works? Because when you, when you set off in life, and as you go through life, do you see that, is life like a Disney movie? Does Sleeping Beauty always wake up? Does the frog always turn into a prince? Does Cinderella always make it to the ball? In the end, does everybody get to marry who they want to marry? And in the end, everybody who, who they loved and died is actually alive? Is life like a Disney movie or is life more like Hamlet? Everybody distressed and dying in the final scene. Because you talk with people who have lived life, particularly the most accomplished, the most successful, often the most smartest, and you ask them, is complete joy possible? They'll say no. In fact, often the, um, the elites often look down on people, continue to pursue joy, because they see it just as futile as trying to hold on to a flower that blooms in spring. It's going to fade. Recently, I was listening to a, uh, it was a conversation between two very public, uh, popular thinkers, Sam Harris, who's an atheist, and Jordan Peterson, who's, uh, he's not an atheist as far as I can tell, but he, he's sympathetic toward religion, and they got talking about well-being, and Sam Harris, he just made a very interesting point. He said, you know, it's as if this world is designed to frustrate any permanent sense of happiness. You know, he, he's, he's very successful, he has a great family, he loves his family deeply, it's as if this world is designed to, to frustrate your ability to grab hold of permanent joy. And he's right. Because nothing in this world, as we saw all throughout Ecclesiastes, can give you complete joy. And so here's, here's what we have. There, there are three kinds of people. There are people who think joy is inevitable. And if this is you, you're either very naive, or you're just zooming through life so tied to your phone and, and busy with your pursuits that you don't actually slow down to think about the condition of your life. So you have people who, joy, who think joy is inevitable. And then you have folks who think joy is impossible. So these folks are all, all, often the smartest, the most accomplished, the most successful. 
And then you have people like John, who know that joy is not inevitable, but it's also not impossible. It, it is possible. And this is this is particularly significant when when you know that when you know that John is a he, he's a very old man, and most old men are, are either at at best they're they're cynical and just too chastened by by the things they've seen in life to believe that complete joy is actually possible. But here John is saying no, com- no complete joy is possible. Jesus came to bring it, and if you give your life to him, then you will have a, a fountain of joy at the center of your being that, that no circumstances can take away. So complete joy is possible, and, and I hope you're, you're sitting there not shrugging this off, but saying to yourself, I, I hope so. And Here's the solemn warning as we move forward into this series as you learn how to, to live into this complete joy that, that Jesus gives you is what your temptation is going to be because this is the heart's default setting. Your temptation is going to be as we read through this letter is to say either these things are, are too simple or too illogical. Because we, we love the extraordinary. If something isn't extraordinary, that, that can't lead to joy. Or if something doesn't make sense to my limited view of things, then that can't give me joy. So as we move forward, please do not be a fool and cast off these things as either too simple or too logical. Because that's what Jesus came to, to do, to give you complete joy. Okay, so Jesus came to give you complete joy. Next, he came to give you fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. So here he says in, in verse 3, That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. So what he's saying is the things that we've seen and heard, he's talking about all that Jesus did. So the life of Jesus, we proclaim to you the gospel, the good news. So he's saying all that Jesus came to do, he didn't do what he did just so that you'll believe in him in some abstract way that, that he died for your sins and rose again. No, Jesus came so that you will have fellowship with God. Now, Jesus says something in, in, uh, pretty similar in John chapter 17 in his, uh, final, one of his final prayers to the Father where he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you hear what he's saying? Knowing God isn't just a, a, a byproduct of eternal life. It's not just a result of eternal life. No, knowing God is eternal life. And so here's what, what Jesus is saying and what John is saying. You can go to church every week. You can teach other people about the Bible. You can argue about the Bible with people in the church or with people who don't believe, trying to convince them. You can, you can lead other people to Christ and yet actually not know God. Meaning you don't have eternal life. Why? Well, because there's a difference between intellectual knowing and personal knowing. So you can know about your friend, or you can know your friend. And and John's fear for you here is that that you you can know God in the same way that that you know LeBron James. So, yeah, sure, you know about LeBron James, but, but do you actually know, know personally LeBron James? 
And so the difference here between knowing about God and knowing God is the difference between life and death itself. And so here's, here's, the, here's a challenge and, and here's, an, here's an encouragement for you guys. It is, so is, is believing the right things about God, believing what, who Jesus is, what he did, is that necessary? Yes, absolutely. But, but it's, not, it's not sufficient. The, the demons have a great understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So, so the question for you is, do you, do, do you know God? Do you even desire to know God? Have you ever felt a sense of his presence bearing down on your heart? Do you pursue him regularly in prayer, not just when you need something, but just to get more of him? Do you long to know him in the same way that you long to know either a love partner or a dear friend? And if not, if you don't even desire this, then here's what you're doing. You are defeating the very aim and purpose of everything that Jesus came to do. Because Jesus left heaven itself, emptying himself of his glory, becoming a human being to live and die and rise on your behalf, not so that you will believe in him in some abstract way, but so that you will know him and know God. So if you were just walking through life confident in your ability to, to recite scripture verses or talk with somebody about Jesus, you may not have eternal life. Yes, salvation is by grace. It's all about what Jesus, Jesus Christ has done, not based on anything you do. But a, a, a very real, tangible sign of somebody who's tasted this grace is somebody who longs to know God and over time knows God. So that's the challenge. But the, the second part is an encouragement here. Because if you... I have to be careful here because, yes, you go through seasons, and there are many times where you have to, to pray and obey and come to church even when you don't feel anything. But if you regularly seek God genuinely in prayer and in his word and obeying his, his commandments, God will not play peekaboo with you. There, there will be moments... Where you, where you actually sense more of his presence. So the Bible often uses sensory language to talk about knowing God. So for example, Psalm 34 says, taste and see that, that the Lord is good. So there, there, there are times where you're, where you're in his word, for example, and you read a verse that maybe you've read for a thousand times, but, but it catches fire in your heart. And it's as if you feel the pressure of God's love coming down upon you. And it's as if there, there are dark apartments in, in your being that are being shed with the light of his radiant presence for the first time. Knowing God, that, that can change the, those hard spots in your heart that, that no therapy can, that no amount of trying harder can, can soften areas of your heart that, that nothing else can. Because it, it's, a, it's a personal knowing. It's a love relationship. And so think about the, the love of a coworker. Say the love of a coworker or a neighbor. That can change you for a day. But what about the love of a best friend or a spouse? Somebody being there for you through, through thick and thin. That can change you for a year, maybe a lifetime. But the love of the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world, who gave his very life for you, 
that love will change you for a lifetime and absolutely for eternity. Do you know him? That's why Jesus came, so that you will, you will know him. Please do not content yourself with just knowing trivia and then coming to church periodically, maybe getting excited if you miss church because you're traveling. But actually, come to church wanting to know him, to worship him, to hear from him through his word, to meet him at the Lord's table. Do you know him? Okay, so Jesus came so that you'll have complete joy. Jesus also came so that you will know God, not just know about him, but know him. And third, Jesus came so that, that you will know who God is. It's, it's earth-shattering that John starts this whole letter about knowing God and knowing that you have eternal life by, by talking about the fact that, that Jesus says that, that he heard Jesus, saw Jesus, God himself come to earth. Do you... Okay, so, so here's what I was, here's what I, what I realized this week, why, why this is so crucial. I think the, the, the main reason why you don't have a joy at the center of your being, why you don't know God, or why you don't even thirst to know God, is because you, you don't really know what God is like. Or you don't really know who he is. Right? Because he, he's an abstraction. He, he's invisible. You can't see him. And that's, if, if, if you're honest, that can be incredibly frustrating. Because you don't have this problem with any other love relationship, do you? At least most of the time, as far as I know. With, with, with a dear friend, with a spouse, you, you can see them, you can touch them, you, you, can, you can see in their face how they respond to you. But you can't see God. And so when he's just an abstraction, of course he's not as real as other people's approval or of how, how your kids are doing or, or, or how you're performing. Of course not. And there, there, there are many times where I've, I've spoken with uh, very genuine skeptics and seekers, and one of the things they, they continually raise is, Steve, you're, you're asking me to believe in an invisible God. I, I just, sorry, I just can't have the faith that you do. I'm empathetic toward that. Or, or, or sitting with a, a, a suffering Christian who's in pain or doubting, and what, what they say is, if I, could just, if I could just see God, if I could touch him, then, then maybe I, I wouldn't doubt so much. Maybe, would act, maybe I would actually know he was, he was fully committed to me. So what, what does God look like? Who is he? And to, to answer this question, I want to take you back roughly 70 years or so to a World War II battlefield where there was a dying soldier. And the soldier is, um, he's mortally wounded, and a chaplain approaches him. And in, in the soldier's dying breath, he, he, he grabs the, the chaplain, and he says, Padre, Father, what is God like? Is God like Jesus? Is that not a very important question? He's asking, when I, after I die and open my eyes, who am I going to see? 
what is God like? And what John is getting here at, at this letter is we get God wrong when we try to answer that question, what is God like? So where are the places you may look to see what God is like? Well, you can go inside yourself. So is God like me? For your all's sake, I really hope God is not like me. And I love you all deeply, but I, I hope God is not like you. So where else can you look? You can look at nature. So there's some beautiful things in nature. The Grand Canyon, the Swiss Alps, a mother duck tending to her ducklings. But there's also terrible things in nature. Tsunamis that wipe out hundreds of thousands of children. Hurricanes that devastate people's households. You can look at humanity. So out there, so there there's some profound tender acts of love and compassion between human beings. But there's also incredible cruelty and abuse. Is that what God's like? And you notice the problem with all of these is they start very man-centered. So you're, you're skewed from the start. And none of these answers are particularly encouraging. And so to answer this question... I'd like to tell you one more story, and I heard this from my friend Jono. He's a professor at Cambridge University, and he was talking about this, this dying soldier, and, and what, what, he, what he said is he was talking about, so he, he has a little girl. Uh, my friend Jono, he has this three-year-old little girl, and one night his wife was doing bedtime with her daughter, and her, her daughter interrupted her mother and just said, Mommy, what does God look like? Essentially, she was asking the same question that this dying soldier was asking. Is God just powerful and scary? Can, can I trust him? Is he only loving? Is he loving at all? And what this mother did, she could have, she could have said, well, God's a spirit. John himself affirms this in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God. So she, she could have said, well, God's, God's invisible. Or she could have taken her maybe to one of her many little books and shown her a picture of an old man up on a cloud, something like that. God looks something like that. But here's what she did. She, she opened up the storybook Bible, which we, we use in, in our children's ministry, that like orange and bluish story Bible book. And she said... She was answering the question, what does God look like? And she opens up the Bible, and, or she opens up the storybook Bible, and this is what she reads to her little girl. On a dark night in Gethsemane, Jesus walked alone into the blackness. He needed to talk to his heavenly Father. He knew it was time to die. Jesus was going to take the punishment for all the wrong things anybody had ever done or will do. Papa, Father, Jesus cried as he fell to the ground. Is there any other way to get your children back, to heal their hearts and get rid of the poison? But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. And then a few pages later, but even more horrible... Jesus knew that because people ran away from God, he was going to have to take the punishment for that too. 
He was going to lose his father, and that, Jesus knew, would tear his heart in two. Violent sobs shook Jesus' whole body. And then Jesus was quiet like a lamb and said, I trust you, Papa. Whatever you say, I will do. So they walked up a hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, gasped Jesus. They don't understand what they're doing. People shouted, if you really were the Son of God, climb down off that cross. And they were right. Jesus could have said a word and made it stop, just like he healed that little girl and calmed the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down the face of the one who came to wipe away every tear from every eye. The earth trembled, the mountains shook, and it seemed creation itself would tear apart. The full force of God's anger at sin came down on his son instead of his people. Then Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Then the mother put the book down, and she said, That's what God looks like. That's, that's exactly what John is saying here. He says, the life itself was made manifest. We saw him with our eyes. We heard him. We touched him. So who is God? God is the life, the death, and the life again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Testified to through the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. That's recorded for us in scripture. You could say that the life of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Gospels is God's autobiography written down from when he came on the public stage of history for, for the entire world to read. And this means some wondrous things. You can stop guessing what is God like. You, you don't have to wonder, what does God think about me when you remember those shameful things that have happened to you or that you've committed and then hide them again and don't tell anybody? When you feel like a fraud at work or, the, or when you've failed as a parent? You don't have to ask, does God care about anything that I'm going through when, when you're sitting there silently suffering and so few people know what's going on? You don't have to wonder, can God handle this storm as you're laying in bed awake, as anxious thoughts are plaguing your mind? And you don't have to guess, can God really use me, a, a moral failure for his kingdom, when there's all these other people who are so much more gifted than me? You don't have to guess, because you can turn to the pages of scripture and you can read when Jesus stood between the woman caught in adultery and the crowd who wanted to stone her and knelt by her side and said, I do not condemn you. 
Now go and sin no more. You can read when the disciples are terrified as a storm is is lashing at the boat. And Jesus stands up and with the word of his power says, Quiet, be still, and commands the storm. And then turns around with the fierceness of a lion and the commanding presence of a king and says, Why are you so afraid? You can read about when Mary was, was weeping outside the tomb of her dead brother. And Jesus didn't come with trite answers about why is there suffering, but he just held her and wept, shaking with sobs. And you can read about when the resurrected Jesus Christ stood on the shore of a lake with the apostle Peter, who had just denied Jesus Christ. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, I know that you love me, but now that you know that you're a failure, Now that you know you are helpless and in need of my grace, now you're ready to be a leader of my people. So you can receive those words as God himself saying them to you. I do not condemn you if you are trusting in Christ. Do not be afraid. Take heart for I have overcome the world. And I've covered your shame and failures in my robe of righteousness. And in me you can have complete joy. So now you know, if that dying soldier were to ask you, what is God like? Is God like Jesus? And you can answer with a confident yes. God is like Jesus. Jesus. More than that, God is Jesus. And if you stop holding on to your life and give yourself to Him, you will have fellowship with God and joy complete. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just can't thank you enough for revealing yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. What glorious news it is that you are Jesus himself. Help us to give our entire life to you just as you first gave your life to us. Make our joy complete as we know you throughout this series. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and most high king, we pray. Amen.